You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. All right, one of the, uh, one of the thrills amongst many, uh, thrills of being married to Michelle, is that she does everything 100%. Okay? There is no partial in her vocabulary. So it's never, hey, let's do a little bit of gardening today. It's, hey, Christian, I went into the garage and took the saw. I cut down some trees. I'm going to need you to haul them away today. <laughs> so she, everything she does is 100%. So she once got on this minimalist kick where... Um, she, she cut her wardrobe down significantly to a very small amount of clothes, which is totally fine, totally fine. We have a very equal, e- egalitarian home. <laughs> she is totally fine to do that, except she looked at me as if I was obligated to join her in this endeavor. <laughs> so, you know, kind of feeling obligated, I start looking through my clothes, and I start looking through my stuff, and I find a pair of jeans, <laughs> that now like sort of expose more leg than they cover, which kind of looks kind of gross. And um, a couple t-shirts and things like that. And I bring out, she's got this, okay, so she's got this pile that's this big to donate, you know, big enough for our kids to get lost in. And I bring this like little stack of uh, like old pair of jeans and a t-shirt I don't like anymore. And Michelle tells me, you have so many clothes that don't fit. You have so many clothes that don't fit. And I say, no way. I know, I like, I know my clothes. I know my wardrobe. So because I have to prove her, wrong. Um, I I start sorting through my stuff again, and I begin to realize, oh wait, (laughs) like I've had that shirt since I was a teenager. There's an awful lot of mediums in here. It's been a long time since I fit in a medium. (laughs) And what I realized is that I was holding on to the old. I was holding on to the old. I had a huge number of clothes that I hadn't fit in in years, in even decades. And there was not going to be going any back. There wasn't going to (laughs) go, I wasn't going to go back. Okay, I wasn't going to go back into those days and fit in those clothes. And it would be pointless to try. Somehow, someway, I had deceived myself into thinking that if I hang on to these things for long enough, one day, just one day, I may be able to make it work. I may be able to make the old work. You see, how I approach my closet is very similar to how we are prone to approach Christianity. In this passage today, Jesus is describing that the kingdom of God introduces something new into this world, something new into our lives, 
And what Jesus is saying is that this something new that he brings is simply incompatible with the old. Simply incompatible. Jesus did not come to reform the old way to God. Jesus did not come to reform the old, worn-out, tired way for us to live, but to totally transform it. What Jesus is saying is when God is doing a new thing, we ought to join instead of resisting, instead of resisting him. Now, it's important to connect this passage to the previous passages that we looked at last week. The events leading up to this point was, as Mark tells us, Jesus approaches Levi, the tax collector, who's at his tax booth, and he simply says, follow me. And Levi, rising from the tax booth, follows Jesus, immediately leaves his things and follows Jesus. The very next scene, we find that Jesus is reclining at table, enjoying a feast with a group of tax collectors and sinners. But as Mark describes, the scribes of the Pharisees, as we assume, think, thinking too highly of themselves to actually join in this feast, are on the outside looking on with contempt. They're asking and, and really grumbling amongst themselves, who is he eating with? Why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? Why is he eating with them? Which leads us up to this verse 18, where we start a passage this morning. Now, or it could be translated, meanwhile... John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Oh. So their grumbling isn't just in their questioning. Their grumbling is coming from their stomachs. We're out here suffering for God. We're out here starving it out for God. We're out here trying to be the most faithful people that we can be for God, and you're over here feasting with sinners. Hardly seems fair. We're suffering, and you're feasting. You can almost hear the, um, the echoes of the older brother in, in the parable of the prodigal son. See, the, pro- the parable of the prodigal son essentially tells two stories. The first portion is that the younger brother comes to the father and says, you are as good as dead to me, so give me my portion of the inheritance. And so he takes his inheritance and he goes off to a far off distant land and he spends it on reckless living. And what happens is just as he runs out of money, there's a severe famine in the land. And so this young man, this young Jewish boy finds himself in the lowest place that he could ever find himself. He's feeding pigs. And he finds himself in this place where he couldn't get any lower where he's so desperate for food, he's going to eat from the pig's trough. And he comes to himself and he realizes that it would be better to be a servant, a hired hand in my father's house, than to be out here trying to survive amongst the pigs. So he musters up enough courage to come and kind of bring himself back to his father. But as he's off in the distance, his, his father actually runs to him and embraces him, and he wraps his arms around him, and he kisses him on the neck, and he gives him the ring, and he says, you're not a servant, you're my son. And he calls to the servants. He says, come here, come here. Let's, 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 uh, let's, why is the word escaping me? Not crucify. That's the wrong word. Let's slaughter. (laughs) Thank you. I'm a little foggy in the head today. Still recovering. Let's slaughter the fattened calf. Let's celebrate. My, My son was lost, but now he's found. 
Portion one of the story. Portion two, verse 25, Luke 15. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came, he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, well, your brothers come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, don't ever say this to your dad, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your commandment. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate. Now that's key. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. H.L. Mencken, once a journalist, once uh, described the religion of his time like this. It's that haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. Wait, do you hear that? Joy? Celebration? Sounds dangerous. They must be doing something wrong. Or better yet, do you hear that? Joy? Celebration? I must be getting overlooked in this deal. Because I've been the one that's doing all this stuff for God. I've been the one that's been obeying. I'm the one out here fasting. Where's my celebration? Where's my praise? It's been said before that, that comparison is the, the thief of joy. And we see this expressly here in Mark with this comparison. Why are they fasting and they are not? Why are we fasting and your disciples aren't? But you see, this is always the result of religiosity in the long run. This is always the result of what Jesus is describing here as the old, the old way. What it does is it places ourselves in a place of superiority and then begins to see all those who don't add up to our ideal metric of holiness and pious, piety rather, as inferior. So we are inferior, you are inferior. Essentially what religion does is it divides between us and them. Us over here and you over there. Perhaps because of a lack of peace with God, perhaps because of a lack of, of, of assurance in his approval or acceptance, it leads us to constantly be finding our bearing in this world based on where other people are. So it sounds like sounds something like this. I'm not who I want to be, but at least I'm not like that guy. Yeah, I've got this thing in my life, but at least I'm not like her. Yeah, I may raise my voice, but at least I don't blow up like them. Yeah, I got this little addiction, but at least I'm not strung out like so-and-so. And on and on and on. Because of a lack of understanding of justification and standing before God, we attempt to justify ourselves before people. We try to find our place in the world because we can't find our standing before God based on people's failings. Us versus them. 
all in the hopes that we'll find some sort of inner peace and justify ourselves. Now, it's important to note something here, that there was only one explicit command for a regular and ongoing fast day in the Old Testament, which was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. In fact, but what happened was over the, the next years and centuries that followed, other occasions for fasting became tradition. So that by the first century, which is the time of Jesus here, it was very typical for the Pharisees to fast every single Monday and every single Thursday, along with other fast days that were raised up in Israel. So think about this, this command for one single day had evolved through human tradition into over 100 days. One became two, became four, became 10, became 100. Oh, you only fast once? We fast 100? Oh, you, you, you settle with that? We do, we do every Monday and every Thursday. Now, it was considered voluntary, but we know how voluntary works within the church, don't we? <laughs> Come volunteer to serve in the kids' ministry, because if you don't, they're doomed. <laughs> right? Our kids are just going to run amok if you don't, but it's totally voluntary. Or you should volunteer to help in the parking lot. If you don't, all our cars are going to be broken into, but it's totally up to you if you want to do it. So it was voluntary, in, in air quotes there. But really, it was a way to just divide between those who were pious and those who were not. Voluntary meant to do a division between those who were serious about God and those who were not very serious about God. Consider another parable that Jesus tells further on in Luke, in Luke 18. To those who, who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, sound familiar? Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Perfect illustration, Jesus. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, Monday and Thursday, just in case you forgot God, and I give a tenth of all that I have. But, Jesus says, the tax collector stood at a distance and would not even look up to, the, to heaven, but he simply beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, maybe some of the most frightening words recorded in Scripture, I tell you, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The tax collector went home justified before God. This seems to be the linchpin for a question about fasting this morning. This question about fasting that the, the disciples of John and the Pharisees bring to Jesus and his disciples or really the linchpin about a question about anything that we do for God. When we do something for God, is it done in order to exalt ourselves? Or is it done in true humility? Is it done out of self-reliance and self-righteousness? Or is it done in light of the great mercy of God? When we do something for God, is it done in that compulsion to, rise our, to raise up to, to new heights of religion, 
Or is it done in the confidence that it's God who lifts us up? For here really is the question beneath the questions. When we do something for God, is it to find approval from God? Or is it because we have approval from God through faith in Jesus Christ? That distinction is a deal breaker. That distinction is the difference between the Pharisee going home that day and the tax collector going home justified. Is it to find approval with God? Or is it because we have received approval from God by his great mercy through Jesus Christ? This seems to be the difference between the old and the new that Jesus is describing here. The old approach to God, which leads to comparison. The old approach to God, which leads to insecurity because it's never enough. One day leads to two days, leads to 10 days, leads to 100 days, and sooner or later, you're never eating because it's never enough. Religion demands, religion demands, religion demands, but you never quite meet. The old way that leads to exclusion of certain types of people, us and them, or the new way that Jesus is describing, the new way that leads to celebration, the new way that leads to freedom, and the new way that leads to welcome of others. So you may be here asking this morning, well, how do I know if I'm living into the new or into the old? Well, here are a couple questions to consider that may indicate that we are living into the old. How do you know that you're living to the old? Well, perhaps you read the Bible primarily as a script of what you must do for God rather than a cohesive story about what God has done for you and what God is continuing to do through you. How do you know that you're living into the old? Well, when you think of God's thoughts towards you, you imagine his disappointment rather than his delight. How do you know you're living into the old? When you envision God, it's a frown instead of a smile. How do you know that you're living into the old because you still approach God with the mindset that you are there to earn? I've come to God to earn something, to gain something. How do you know you're living into the old? You see people's failures more than you see the evidences of God's grace in their lives. And let's use the illustration from here in Mark. How do you know you're living into the old? You experience more criticism and more cynicism than you do celebration. I'll give you just a moment to think about your life. Is it marked by cynicism? Is it marked by criticism? Or is it marked by celebration? Because this is probably a really good indicator whether we're living into the old or we're living into the new. Now, Lent, the the, the timing of this passage is really unfortunate. I just got to lay that out there. Because it sounds like Jesus is saying, don't ever fast again. And then we're saying, hey, you should fast for Lent. Not saying that. We'll get to that in just a moment. But um, what I want to warn us about in the Lent season is Lent can actually be a cover-up for cynicism. I've seen this. Lent can be a cover-up for a refusal to celebrate. Lent can be that season that you are waiting for and longing for because deep down there's a refusal to celebrate and you're just hanging on for that Ash Wednesday so that you can be down and depressed again. Lent may be a safe harbor for your critical spirit. In which case, you probably should not remember Lent. We simply look here at Mark. Who's grumbling? Who is suspicious? Who is questioning the freedom that Jesus brings? Who is sitting on the outside looking in? 
And who are those who are eating? Who are those who are enjoying Jesus? Who are those who are celebrating life? Who are those who are sitting at the table? The old and the new. And Jesus offers us these three illustrations to really communicate what the new looks like in this world. What Jesus' presence brings into this world. The first illustration, if you're taking notes, is this. A wedding celebration. Wedding celebration. Verse 19. You guys are really quiet today, but I'm just going to assume you with me. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I love this. They ask him a question. Jesus says, I'm going to ask you a question. So they ask Jesus, the people ask, why do they fast? Speaking of his disciples, Jesus responds and says, turns the question around on them and says, why do they mourn? Why don't your disciples fast? Let me ask you, why are they mourning? Why are the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees mourning? See, fasting in the Old Testament was almost always associated with mourning and grieving. Grieving over the broken state of their nation. Mourning over the sin of the people. Jesus seems to be saying, these disciples of the Pharisees, these disciples of John, must not be discerning what is going on right now. They must not be seeing the signs of the time. This sort of hopeless grief that they are displaying in their fasting is just as inappropriate as if an entire guest list showed up to a wedding wearing all black and mourned. My cousin is getting married. My youngest cousin, I believe. I think it's my youngest cousin. Is getting married in a couple weeks. So my wife took our daughters to go get little dresses for the wedding. And they came back with, is it yellow and green? The cutest little yellow and green dresses. But could you imagine if she came back with clothes for a funeral? It'd be like, wait, wait, what's going on here? I think you got yourself a black dress, didn't you? <laughs> Michelle's a little goth. Don't just kind of ignore that. <laughs> okay, you didn't. Okay, I'm just, I'm just kidding. She wanted to. She almost got a black dress. Okay, well, you get the illustration, right, guys? It would be just as inappropriate as if an entire guest list shows up to a wedding all in black and mourning. Now Jesus says there's going to be a time to fast. Look with me in verse 20. The days are going to come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus is describing the period of time following his death. There will be a time to fast. In fact, elsewhere throughout the Gospels, Jesus teaches his disciples how to fast. Just this last week on Wednesday, we, 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 I taught a breakout session on fasting. There are appropriate biblical ways to fast. The irony is that we are in the beginning of the Lent season where Christians all over the place are intentionally fasting in preparation for Easter. But listen to what Jesus is saying. Not right now. Not right now. Why? Because the bridegroom is here. Because the bridegroom is here. This is not a funeral. This is a wedding. This is not a time to mourn and grieve. This is a time to celebrate. And when Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom, he is, he's doing at least two things. The first is that he's claiming to be God. These Jewish, the people that are listening to Jesus, these, these Jewish scribes of the Pharisees would have been well aware of the countless scriptures that describe God as the groom of Israel. The God who sought out to claim a 
broken and a needy and a rebellious people, Israel, and committed to love her despite her unfaithfulness. Okay, the book of Hosea is a beautiful illustration of God being the, the bridegroom and the church, or God's people being the bride. And so God, or rather Jesus, is claiming to be God. He's not just communicating on behalf of God, he's communicating as God. But secondly, and I think that this is really where we need to focus here, Jesus is defining the relationship. Jesus is defining what this sort of relationship is going to be like. That fellowship with God is not intended to be a dry, lifeless list of do's and don'ts and duties. Fellowship with God is not marked by just this dry, lifeless existence, but it is a relationship of communion and more specifically to function like a loving marriage, a bridegroom and a bride. Not a fickle contractual agreement where if we don't meet all the terms and conditions that he tears the contract. I think some of us imagine God is just leaning over the edge of heaven with that contract ready for us to fail so he could just tear it up. But as Jesus defines the relationship, he reminds us that it is not a contract, it is a covenant. A bond of commitment and steadfast love. Friend, you are going to fail God. You are going to fail God. You're going to fail God today. But his love will never fail you. The bridegroom will remain faithful to the bride. He will remain in steadfast covenant love with his people. The old and the new. The old way seems to be haunted by the process of trying to get to God. While the new is recognizing that God has come to us and enjoying him. The irony here is that they're like, hey Jesus, we're doing all these things to get to God. And Jesus is like, hello? (laughs) I'm here. One, the old way is preoccupied with the process. The new way is preoccupied with the person of Jesus Christ. One is caught up in the ways to try to get to God. The other is just enamored with Christ has come to us. Christ is among us. He is with us. Enjoy him. Religion versus the gospel. What we must do for God versus what Christ has done for us. The second illustration that Jesus gives is that of a worn-out garment. A worn-out garment. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and and a worse tear is made. What Jesus brings in to this world is not a new patch on the old way of doing things. Jesus is not a patch on the old way of doing things. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to patch up the old. I came to totally transform it. Jesus is saying, I didn't, Jesus is saying, if I come into your life, I'm gonna change everything. If I come into your life, expect everything to change. (coughs) I love this illustration by C.S. Lewis. I know I quote a lot of C.S. Lewis, but that's kind of the, the running joke around here. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. 
He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? God, what are you doing in my life right now? This is crazy. This is not what I signed up for. The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. You see, beyond a little cottage or even a palace, the Bible tells us that God actually intends for our lives, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our everything, to be a living tabernacle, the tent of meeting, a temple unto the Lord. In fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes it like this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, a place of worship, a place where the Spirit of God resides, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Your body is a temple. He redeemed it in order to dwell within it. See, we often come to God with the expectation that he will simply patch things up. A little cosmetic work here, a little paint here, He'll fix this little crack over here. I'm not, Jesus, I'm not asking you to change everything. That's, that's a lot to ask. I'm just, changing for, I'm just asking for a little touch-up, a little help here. I could use a little fixing here. I could use a little fixing in my relationships. I could use a little fixing in my finances. I could use a little fixing in my, in my schooling. Just a little fix. That's all I'm asking for, Jesus. Just a little bit. But at the end of the day, we are holding on to the old. We're holding on to the old life marked by sin. We're holding on to the old life marked by idolatry. We're holding on to the old life marked by greed. We're holding on to the old life marked by addiction and marked by sexual immorality and marked by self-righteousness and marked by pride. We're holding on to the old in hopes that somehow the life of the Spirit is just going to be willing to coexist with the old way of doing things within that the Holy Spirit is, is willing to occupy this tabernacle next to the other idols that we have established in our lives. Oh, hey, idol over there. Hey, idol over here. It's not just one for me. This is not just a place for me. It's a place for all of these things. I'm totally okay with that. The life of the Spirit is absolutely not okay with that. You are a temple of the Lord, bought with a price. You are not your own. Jesus warns us that there's actually consequence to this that in the long run when this is our approach and we're trying to hold on to the old and then embrace the new that we actually get caught in the middle and the terror is worse than before he seems to be saying something that there's actually something worse than not coming to Jesus at all there's something worse than not coming to Jesus at all and it's coming to Jesus trying to use him as a cover-up for our old life trying to use Jesus as just a patch on the old way of doing things. We've probably all met people that are experiencing such painful and agonizing experiences as Christians. Perhaps it's because they've come to Jesus to patch things up rather than to yield to his transformation. 
This existence of hanging on to the old and trying to embrace the new is probably one of the most miserable existence of all. It tears us. It rips us apart. It's miserable. Jesus warns, don't do it. It's miserable. Jesus is making it clear. Don't ask me to come into your life to simply patch up the old. Don't do it. I'm not interested in that, Jesus is saying. I am interested in making you entirely new. You can yield or you can resist. Friend, you can yield or you can resist. You guys still with me? Okay. Final illustration is this. Wine and the wineskins. Verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst, the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. The new life of the kingdom, what Jesus is saying, demands a new way of life. The, the, new, the new life of the kingdom demands a new way of life. Jesus can't be fit into our old way of life. Jesus can't and Jesus won't. Now, whether that's a life of licentiousness, where we are off doing whatever we think feels good, living into cheap grace, well, Jesus forgives me so it doesn't really matter. I'm just gonna go do whatever I wanna do. Or we're living into a way of legalism where we think that we need to work our way to God and find his approval by earning. What, really, what we need to understand is both ways don't work. The New Testament will tell us over and over again, both religion and non-religion do not work. Both religion and non-religion are old wineskin that will burst open. There's something new that's demanded of us. The kingdom of God through Jesus Christ can't be contained within the old. We have evidence of this already all the way back in the Old Testament where King Solomon at the consecrating of the brand new temple, he's praying, and he's praying before God's people, and he prays before the Lord, and he says, God, even the highest heavens can't contain you. Like the universe can't contain you, let alone this, this temple, this house built with hands. The highest heavens can't contain you, let alone this thing that we have built. And what, what, what Solomon is alluding to, Jesus is really fulfilling here. What Jesus brings, his, his kingdom, his spirit can't be squeezed into things that are built with human hands. Jesus can't be squeezed into your tradition. Jesus can't be squeezed into the church's trend. Jesus can't be squeezed into anything, amen? He won't be squeezed into these categories. Jesus is describing that there is something powerful and something explosive occurring when the kingdom of God breaks into our world and breaks into our lives. In fact, I find it interesting when the New Testament speaks of the power of God, it often uses a word in the Greek that is dunamis. It's where we get the, the English word dynamite. The power of God, dynamite. Explosive power. See, we often are expecting a tame and a mild Jesus. Let's be honest, we want a Jesus we can put in our pocket. We want a Jesus in the cupboard. 
We want a Jesus that we can go to from time to time and kind of get the kind of things that we want, but we, we can also kind of tuck them away when we don't want to have to deal with them. We want a mild and tame Jesus when we should be expecting the explosive power of heaven. A power that rips open the old. In fact, one commentator pointed out, the sound of ripping is being heard all throughout Mark. We see it in the beginning of Mark as God rends the heavens as he declares, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased as he sends the spirit upon Christ. The heavens are torn open. We see as Jesus raises this little piece of bread from a young boy and he blesses it before the Lord and he breaks it open and he's able to multiply it and feed thousands of people present. We see it towards the end of Mark as the, the high priest rips his clothes when he's confronted with the claim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And finally, as Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, for the sins of the world, as Jesus died on the cross so that we may be reconciled to God, so that we may receive new life, Mark tells us that the veil of the temple, a veil that otherwise separated us from God, that dividing line was torn from top to bottom as the presence of God was made available to all those who come through Jesus Christ. Tearing and tearing and tearing and tearing. And even that sound can be heard in our lives as well as Jesus is tearing those things that separate us from him. As Jesus is tearing open those old, worn-out things and those old, worn-out ways that we have been trying to push the life of the Spirit and the life of the kingdom into. And Jesus says, I refuse to fit. I'm gonna burst that thing open. The sound of tearing is heard in Mark, and I hope and pray that we can hear that tearing in our lives as well. And I hope and pray that we can hear that tearing in our church as well. And I hope and pray that we can hear that tearing in our city as well as Jesus bursts things open with the life of the kingdom and the life of the spirit that cannot be contained, that comes with dynamite power of heaven. Amen? <laughs> the, tearing opens, the tearing open signifies the, the end of the old and the beginning of the new. So the question for you, friend, is where are you living? Are you living into the old or are you living into the new? God is doing a new thing through Jesus Christ, so we need to consider a, a series of questions today. Will you join the party, or will you grumble because the new wine is threatening to burst open the old and familiar ways that you're used to? Will you try to fit Jesus into our old, tired agenda, or will you open yourself up to his newness? Will you be busy trying to revive the old way of doing things or will you rise by the power of the Spirit to the resurrection life of Jesus Christ? And finally, God declares to us from eternity in Revelation 21, behold, I'm making all things new. Will we join him or will we resist him? Reality, will you join him or will you resist him? Let's pray.